You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to another episode of Foreign Affairs. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me is our foreign affairs expert at the Fleming Foundation, Dr. Serge Trifkovich. Dr. Trifkovich, thanks for joining us. It's always good to be with you, and I'm very pleased we are back after a long break. Yes, part of the thing I should explain to our listeners is, is Dr. Trifkovich has a heavy travel schedule, and normally we're quite time compatible. We're only an hour apart from each other. But I was away in the United States for a lot of this summer, and Dr. Trifkovich was traveling. So apologize for the layoff, but um, we're happy to get back into things. But it seems, Dr. Trifkovich, the more things change, uh, the more they stay the same. We're still going to be talking about Trump, and it seems as though the situation has only gotten worse without necessarily being uh, terminal yet. And before the before the show, before the episode, you were talking about the fact that realistically Trump has surrendered on a number of fronts, and we're seeing this expressed in different ways. What do you mean by that, first of all? Well, if we look back at his first major foreign policy speech during the campaign, uh, which I believe was at the end of May or early June of last year, uh, he was quite specific on the principle of giving up on the concept of the global empire and exceptionalism. Uh, And he even reiterated that in his inaugural speech on January 20th. We are not going to tell other people how to arrange their lives and so on. Uh, Also during the campaign and in that particular speech, but also later on in the commander-in-chief debate, uh, he stated several heretical things from the viewpoint of the Washingtonian duopoly. Uh, He expressed doubt about the utility of NATO. Uh, He called it obsolete and said that in the struggle against terrorism, we may need a different mechanism. He also repeatedly said that uh, Crimea is none of our business and uh, he would improve relations with Russia and jointly focus on the struggle against terrorism. Uh, He also said that uh, we should withdraw from Afghanistan altogether because it's an unwinnable war and uh, that it's a long road to nowhere or words to that effect. And uh, on Saudi Arabia, he also sounded a note of warning where he said that we would cooperate with those who fight ISIS if they're serious about it and if they're good to us. And uh, I think it was a clear reference to the Saudis surreptitiously helping ISIS get onto its feet in the early days and then suddenly uh, becoming part of the coalition against it. And uh, as we've seen over the past, what, seven months, uh, he has gradually given up on practically all of those. Uh, I think that the pivotal moment was as early as February 17th, and not many people remember the occasion, but I do because I found it remarkable. It was the security conference in Munich, in Germany, where Vice President Pence said that NATO remains uh, the foundation of U.S. defense policy, and uh, he also traveled on to Brussels, where at the headquarters of the European Union, and let me add that Trump was distinctly Eurosceptic during the campaign. 
He congratulated Nigel Farage of UKIP, the United Kingdom Independence Party, which is, of course, against the EU, on uh, the referendum, Brexit referendum on June 26th. And uh, Mike Pence, after Munich, went to Brussels and said that the United States supports the European Union and further European integration. And uh, it sounded as if uh, Trump didn't exist, or rather as if Trump's statements and commitments didn't really matter. And, uh, of course, the Europeans were profuse in their praise of the vice president. And uh, there was even, uh, I believe, in The Guardian of London, an article praising the fact that, after all, there are some adults in, in the White House. Yes. And also in the month of February, uh, he appointed McMasters as Flynn's replacement at uh, the National Security Council. And... Uh, McMaster's is uh, an establishmentarian through and through. Uh, he regards Russia as uh, a rival and uh, as a potential enemy. He believes in the projection of power and uh, he is certainly not someone who would be prone like Flynn had been to look upon Moscow as a potential partner and even an ally when it comes to fighting terrorism. Uh, Trump, during the campaign, was also uh, extremely cautious about Syria. In fact, he expressed uh, uh, strong reservations about any intervention there, and uh, it was obvious that he believed that it would be better to leave Bashar al-Assad in place. On the other hand, uh, in April, he launched cruise missiles against Bashar's airport, even though uh, the ostensible cause for this attack uh, a, a gas attack allegedly by government forces was obviously a false flag operation, uh, just like the one in Ghouta near Damascus in August of 2013. And uh, three weeks ago, or maybe a month ago, he gave a speech in which he outlined his new strategy for Afghanistan. And sadly, it's neither new, nor is it his, nor is it really a strategy because increasing the U.S. troop contingent from 8,500 to 12,500 is not going to achieve anything that uh, 100,000 could not achieve a decade ago. And uh, on that occasion, his first speech to the nation, he said, well, uh, my instinct is to follow my commitments and, and gut feelings, but once you're in the, the Oval Office, the responsibility of uh, of it all makes you see things in a different light. And my impression is that being in the Oval Office, he sees things in a different light because of the people around him, including also uh, the Defense Secretary Mattis. If you look at the photograph of Trump's first telephone conversation with Vladimir Putin from February, practically no one is there any longer uh, in particular, Steve Bannon and, uh, and Flynn. And uh, also on 12th of July, after the meeting with Putin uh, in Hamburg at the G20 meeting, he said, it is time to uh, improve relations with Russia and we can do it. On the very same day, 
Nikki Haley at the United Nations, and after all, she, as ambassador to the UN, has a cabinet rank, said, we do not trust Russia and we will never trust Russia. <sighs> and uh, 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 Defense Secretary Mattis traveled to Kiev two weeks ago and uh, expressed strong support for the Ukrainians. And uh, uh, Dito, Vice President Pence, who also went to the tiny former Yugoslav Republic of Montenegro, which is a mafiosa state par excellence, and uh, uh, where the majority of people actually opposed joining NATO, which does nothing by entering NATO to improve the security of any main member country. But obviously, uh, bit by bit, and let me add, when he was in Riyadh six weeks ago, he made almost embarrassing statements to his hosts, calling them gracious, and maybe the fact that uh, various contracts worth a total of 400 billion, including arms, over a number of years uh, were agreed upon, may have had something to do about it, uh, to do with it. Uh, and also, it's unfortunate that the anti-Iranian rhetoric is escalating at a time when uh, getting entangled in another uh, Middle Eastern imbroglio is the last thing we need, and uh, it would be prudent not to support too overtly or too uh, uh, too hard the Sunni side in the Sunni Shia uh, dispute, because right now we have a sort of balance of forces in the Persian Gulf, and by supporting the Saudis uh, too explicitly, Trump, in fact, may encourage them to try something foolish, something that will be blamed on the Iranians and get the United States mixed in. Finally, let me add that uh, on North Korea, uh, he has tried to exert pressure on China. We know that, of course, China is the main source of North Korean revenue, such as, as it is, and also foodstuffs. But with the Chinese, if you want to achieve results, you have to do it uh, in line with uh, their self-respect, which is a very important factor, and, uh, and their preference for quiet diplomacy, which has been found over two and a half millennia of continuous history. So I think that uh, we, and let me add another detail, when he was on board uh, the USS Gerald Ford, it was in the first week of March, he talked about 12 carrier task forces, and if you are giving up on the concept of global empire and policing the oceans and being never more than a thousand miles away from the nearest shore, then you certainly don't need 12 task forces, because quite apart from uh, the faulty concept of imperial power projection, uh, aircraft carriers are fast becoming obsolete because carrier killer missiles uh, make it imperative to stay away from their range, but then your aircraft on board the carriers are also out of range uh, of, of their potential targets. So just as the battleship became obsolete when the British had two of their own sunk by the Japanese 
off the coast of Malaya in December 1941, likewise investing into super expensive carriers with aircraft that have the range of 500 miles is simply doesn't make conceptually and and practically any sense. There's such a charismatic power behind the aircraft carrier, Dr. Drivkovich. I think that's probably why we see Britain having aircraft carriers with no aircraft, uh, because <laughs> it's so important for, for people to get this idea, ah, yes, we're building an aircraft carrier. That means we're strong as a nation. Um, I Obviously, there's a lot that you talked about there, and I have to be respectful of, of your time and our listeners' time. So I'm only going to pick two avenues to go down. One is... Is it not in China's long-term strategic interest to continue to keep North Korea as a buffer state? So we do not have alignment, the U.S. or the U.S.'s partners in that region um, with China uh, and potentially with Russia on, on how North Korea can be handled. And then secondly, which addresses the larger scope of what you discussed is, I'm not asking you to be a mind reader. But what do you think has caused this complete capitulation from Trump? I mean, I suspect that part of it is that his gut has served him very well, but that was business, and this is government, and those are completely different things. In the first question, I would say that what the Chinese would need is some sort of assurance that if Kim Jong-un were to fall, that uh, uh, the South would not take the opportunity to reun reunify the peninsula on its own terms. In other words, that there would continue to be some kind of China-friendly neo-communist government there, perhaps not quite as unpredictable and uh, hectic as North Korea seems to be right now. But I think that uh, uh, staging military exercises, which include uh, the notion of uh, intervening if there is collapse of the North Korean regime is not wise, because we know that back in uh, the winter of 1950-51, the Chinese intervened with over a million so-called volunteers to prevent the U.S. forces from reaching the Yellow River, which is the border between North Korea and China, and uh, General Douglas MacArthur was even proposing to President Truman the use of nuclear weapons, with, which Truman wisely declined. So I think that uh, the Chinese are very keen to maintain this buffer, and uh, maybe it is worth trying from Washington to provide assurances that indeed we wouldn't uh, exploit uh, the opportunity if Kim Jong-un were to fall, but on the other hand, it would be in both our interest and in China's to have maybe some kind of military junta that would be more predictable, that could play the game uh, by more acceptable rules. And I think the Chinese wouldn't be averse to that possibility, but really it would be up to the United States to try and see if uh, with their influence in North Korea and undoubtedly with some of their intelligence assets, particularly in the military. They could uh, perhaps contemplate the possibility of removing Kim while at the same time having U.S. guarantee that uh, there is no game plan to unify the peninsula under Seoul and to eliminate the buffer by getting 
South Korean troops and perhaps even US troops all the way up to the Chinese border. As for the second question, I think the problem is that there is something of a gap between uh, Trump's gut feelings, which have served him well during the campaign, and Trump's understanding of the obstacles which he was going to face. Uh, Trump is not an intellectual like Steve Bannon, and Trump is not a person of strong principles. And uh, it is my impression that because he's temperamentally unwilling to admit that he has been forced into a certain position or number of them, that uh, he would rather pretend that, in fact, he agrees with it and it is his own position rather than say, well, damn it, I had no choice but uh, to play the game. So I think that uh, he uh, will rationalize even to himself that uh, it is better to stay in Afghanistan after all the blood and treasure that has been invested and it is better to support the Saudis because after all they're our allies, which is questionable uh, by the way, and uh, uh, that he doesn't have uh, the world view of an instinctive conservative who understands the value of non-interventionism and who understands also that Throughout history, the price of empire has been, in the end, the demise of the nation, which was its bearer. Well, I mean, if, if, if I could pick one picture, the I'm thinking of uh, with the Saudis, the that glowing orb. You remember he and the Egyptian president and, and uh, I think one of the Saudi royals had their hand on this glowing orb. And I just thought this was something straight out of you know, Patrick McGowan's The Prisoner. You know, this is some some strange uh, pact that was going on. But, but yes. And also, if you remember, uh, uh, the sabers, he held one of those curved sabers, yes. which are used to chop off heads of political prisoners and people who insult Islam. Before we leave the North Korea question, because there's other things that we, we need to discuss as well, this has been played out numerous times. So for our for our listeners, what does the U.S. see as a worst-case scenario playing out with North Korea uh, in in some kind of war scenario? What what would be the, why why when Trump says we have not left any options off the table, why is this manifestly false? Uh, well, first of all, the worst-case scenario would be that the North Koreans develop a delivery vehicle for uh, an atomic warhead that can reach the west coast of the United States, and then they uh, use conventional weapons to attack the south, and they have so many uh, cannons, 305 millimeters, multiple uh, rocket launchers aimed at Seoul, which is a megalopolis, with uh, some 40 million people living in uh, the greater area, and it yields maybe a half of South Korea's GDP, that would be uh, the nightmare scenario, because do you intervene to save South Korea and risk San Francisco Bay Area or LA in the process? And uh, uh, my personal opinion is that the North Koreans are not there yet. 
what they have tested so far are not really intercontinental uh, ballistic missiles. They are medium range and their precision is questionable, but it is at the same time quite apparent that they are catching up quicker than some people had anticipated. And I remember writing about this in 2012. Uh, they are much closer to developing a reliable warhead on a reliable rocket. Uh, on the other hand, uh, when we talk about the range of options, I think that Kim's primary concern is the survival of his regime, or rather of himself at the helm of that regime. And that uh, if there was to be some form of assurance that uh, the United States is not seeking regime change in North Korea. And after all, uh, there is no direct dialogue with Kim. Uh, God knows whether it, and Trump even said, uh, I think not even during the campaign, but shortly after inauguration, that he wouldn't exclude the possibility of meeting with Kim. Uh, I think that trying to engage North Korea in some form of dialogue based upon uh, the commitment not to seek regime change would be comparable to the solution of the Cuban Missile Crisis in the fall of 1962, when uh, one of uh, the reasons that uh, Nikita Khrushchev blinked in the end was that the United States made a discrete commitment uh, in addition to removing uh, ballistic missiles from uh, the Turkish northern coast, Black Sea coast, that there will be no repetition of the Bay of Pigs, that there will be no active attempt to change the regime in Havana. Yes, but that was a secret agreement, Dr. Tukovich, and in this day of uh, media scrutiny, I, I don't know that we could have such a parallel, could we? Uh, and the additional problem is that uh, the leaks from inside the Trump camp are continuing and uh, that it would be uh, misconstrued by John McCain and Lizzie Graham as uh, the continuation of Obama's supine soft policy which has made the United States, as they claim, the laughingstock of the world, which is not the case. But what we would need is something that would go uh, along the lines of Nixon's uh, use of Henry Kissinger as a reliable and discreet interlocutor with the Chinese, whether that can be pulled off is indeed uncertain, but at the same time, uh, that, in my opinion, is the only way to go forward, because uh, uh, the rhetoric that we see now uh, and the threats can uh, produce the conditions of uncontrollable escalation because it is obvious that Kim Jong-un believes that uh, he can uh, grandstand for the world stage in a way that is extremely provocative for the United States. And with Trump's temperament, I, I can understand why the South Koreans are extremely nervous. That's why the South Korean president, Moon, uh, told Putin at the Vladivostok summit 10 days ago that he agrees with his approach to the North, North Korean problem. And Putin, of course, is favoring uh, negotiations that would include Pyongyang. Well, of course, Putin, one of the adults in the room, 
probably is is one of the best potential partners we could have. We'll, we'll come back to him. I want to come. I do want to come to North America or the uh, North America, South America, the the continents there because since we've spoken, there was there's been not quite regime change, but near regime change in Venezuela. And Trump, using the same sort of rhetoric towards North Korea, said that there were all options available to deal with the Venezuelans, uh, extending um, the idea of uh, getting back into South American politics via some kind of military intervention. Can you tell us, uh, our listeners, a bit about the situation in Venezuela and what possible good a U.S. intervention would would have there? Uh, well, we've had uh, de facto abolition of democracy with uh, a sham election uh, that produced uh, a quasi-legislative body that uh, replaces parliament. And uh, uh, even though one is inclined to say that uh, Whatever happens, we should stay out of it. Uh, there is no doubt that the behavior of uh, the successes of the illustrious great leader uh, leaves a lot to be desired and political condemnation is in place. But the logistics of an actual military intervention would be awesome and it would certainly result in uh, a very negative reaction, even from those regimes in South America that are US friendly, such as Argentina and Chile uh, and Uruguay, not to mention Mexico, the Central Americans and uh, the Colombians and Peruvians. Uh, what I think may happen in Venezuela is that because it is not a developed totalitarian autocracy, that uh, with the hyperinflation and the collapse of living standards and the collapse of utilities, we may actually see uh, riots and disorder in the streets and uh, regime change from within. And it would be extremely unwise for the United States to get involved uh, in any shape or form. Uh, Venezuela is not yet Cuba 1960-61. Uh, if we look at uh, the, the political scene until a few months ago. There was, in fact, very articulate and uh, very active opposition. They are not being thrown into jail and executed just as yet. And I think that the potential is there for the Venezuelan people not to buy the rhetoric of Bolivarian demagoguery any longer, and that uh, it is, in fact, and even bet that there may be a, a regime change in Caracas from uh, by by uh, the Venezuelans' own effort. One of the regimes that the Venezuelans have some kind of relationship is is the Russians, and this goes back to an ongoing theme. You mentioned it earlier, and we've seen it in the election. The partnership or lack of partnership with Russia, which has deteriorated to the point where we're, the United States is now expelling Russian diplomats and then ransacking those consulates. For our listeners who don't know what the custom is regarding such properties, can you let, let them know what happened and what this spells for on our ongoing relationship with the Russians? Uh there is something called the Vienna Protocol on Diplomatic uh, Relations, 
in its present form, I think it's been in existence since 1961, certainly since the early 60s, where uh, diplomatic and consular premises are treated as uh, that country's territory and are as such inviolable. Uh, I don't think that there was anything to be gained from this violation of the Vienna Convention because the Russians wouldn't be foolish enough to leave behind any classified materials. It was simply a pro provocative gesture, which is tragic because overall, if we assume that global hegemony is not the objective, then it is indeed uh, quite clear that there are no insoluble geopolitical issues between the United States and Russia, that they belong to the same civilizational circle, and that they have the same problem in jihadism. The Russians, of course, had their own share of terrorist attacks in Moscow and uh, with the downing of various airplanes, the one that flew from Sharm el-Sheikh to St. Petersburg last year, and overall, I believe that what Putin said at the Munich Security Conference in 2008, we want better relations, but you have to recognize that we have our interests, not only in our own country, but also in the immediate area surrounding us, uh, implied a traditional approach to diplomacy, which has been... Uh, in, in place since the Peace of Westphalia, 1648, when uh, a sovereign nation state became the unit of international relations. Uh, on, on the other hand, the United States, since the end of the Cold War, has followed uh, what I would like to call deterritorialized approach to global affairs. Every step, every spot on uh, on this globe is equally important because if you postulate as George Bush did in the strategic doctrine in 2002 and it was reiterated in Obama's doctrine in 2014 it is obvious that there will be no recognition that the near abroad is a legitimate sphere of interest. That's why we had uh, the Ukrainian crisis. Ukraine for Russia is not only an area where it has had very close economic and cultural relations and family ties for decades, also for centuries it had actually been part of the Russian Empire. And uh, uh, trying to remove this buffer from Russia's soft southern underbelly is an extremely provocative move the one that brings potentially NATO to uh, uh, the area of Donbas, which is only 600 miles from Kazakhstan, which means that if we look at geopolitical vectors, it has the potential to, uh, in the fullness of time, to cut off Russia from the Caucasus and from uh, South Caspian Basin. And the Russians see that as existential challenge. In addition, there has been the constant attempt by previous administration, and I'm afraid that the present one seems to be continuing this, that uh, Russia needs to change 
its own character, that it needs to accept certain Western concepts of postmodernia, uh, such as gay parade in, in Moscow, such as the acceptance of migrants from Central Asia as welcome and uh, legitimate, and uh, the fact that the Russians don't feel guilty about who they are, and that they're not ashamed of their history, and that Patriarch Kirill is taking part in state ceremonies, is something that drives uh, liberal Russophobes crazy, because they see that as the last serious barrier in uh, the white European Christian world to the march of postmodernity, which has gone so well in Western Europe that uh, Chancellor Merkel says that she would still open the floodgates to another wave of migrants if it were to come. So we have the curious situation that on the one hand you have people like McMasters and John McCain who see Russia as a foe in classical geopolitical terms, uh, sea power in the United States projecting its influence in the rimland that surrounds the heartland. On the other hand, the liberals see Russia more as an enemy in terms of cultural and moral uh, patterns of behavior, and uh, they viscerally hate Russia for the fact that it has not succumbed the way that Germany and Benelux and France and Britain have. So we have Putin in place now, and for those who don't know, the Russian form of government currently allows for only two consecutive terms. So Putin is coming to the end of his first term uh, in his second tenure, because he was, he was also president, obviously, before his time. Uh, it was interesting. I saw him uh, in a press conference the other day, Dr. Trifkovich, and someone had said, well, when are you going to declare as if this is some great mystery that Putin is going to run for president? But Putin said, you know, I, I found that um, in my experience that when you announce uh, a campaign that all work comes to a stop in Russia because everyone's waiting for their jobs that they're going to get after the election. So he said something to the effect of, uh, be assured that um, anyone who is running for office will declare within the time specified by law. <laughs> so I could see him declaring, you know, the day before uh, he's supposed to. Yeah, he's so pragmatic. But if, if obviously he runs and if he's reelected, the six-year term starting next, I think it would be next May, uh, yes, me, would put him uh, basically, if we see Trump being reelected as the partner that he's going to deal with, the, this is the the Russian partner that the U.S. will deal with, and I, I obviously we don't see Putin changing. Putin knows who he is, he knows what his country is, and he knows what he's going for. The question really is: Will will Trump find himself bringing us back to the beginning of today's episode, and also to the conclusion of today's episode? Do you see that? Now that he's surrounded himself by a cabal of yes-men, enabled by the leaks of Ivanka and Jared, that there is any way out for Trump? Uh, is there a, a chance at a, a second-term redemption, or does he maybe cut his losses and leave after the first term, leaving Putin to deal with somebody else? Uh, my hunch is that he will try for the second term, 
and that he will not stage a palace coup that would bring uh, the old Trump, candidate Trump, back to the fore. So I think that uh, the establishment has prevailed and we will see this manageable tension going on for a great many years, which is a pity because the potential had been there all along. Uh, and it is unfortunate that uh, the concept of benevolent global hegemony, as uh, Bill Crystal and uh, Robert Kagan called it in that memorable article 20 years ago, uh, is internalized in Washington by both parties and by people who surround Trump, and he will go along with it. Uh, it is, however, uh, rather worrying that it creates the potential for uncontrollable escalation in places like Syria if, for instance, there is the declaration by the United States of a no-fly zone and the Russian aircraft, of course, operating the area, or if there is the delivery of lethal weapons to Ukraine, which Mattis indicated during his visit to Kiev was a possibility. Uh, it is also interesting that the Europeans, who had been very supportive of uh, the coup uh, at Maidan in the winter of 2014, are getting uh, weary of sanctions. And they believe that in the end, it's the United States that will benefit from those anti-Russian sanctions. The Germans in particular see that uh, uh, they're suffering tremendous economic losses. And uh, I think that if Trump uh, at least tries to roll back uh, the straitjacket that the Congress imposed on him with the vote on sanctions in July, which, by the way, in the Senate, I think was 98 to 1 with one abstention, uh, if he tried to at least get uh, Congress to... Uh, and we will have to see the result of midterm elections for this, uh, to let the president run the, the foreign policy strategy, which is not the case right now, because for as long as you have imposition of congressional straitjacket, he is not really able to exercise his prerogatives. Well, I'm sure there'll be no shortage for us to talk about in our next episode, um, Dr. Drukic. Hopefully, as you mentioned, Syria, I can only hope that the Russians and the Syrians continue to make progress there against ISIS, and there's even more stability. They're making the possibility of another inside job or staged attack uh, less less powerful. But it seems, as, as we saw last time, uh, just as we saw some hope, uh, they managed to dash our hopes. So uh, I will just have to, suppose, pray on that front. But uh, we'll, we'll hear more about that next time. As always, thank you for your time, Dr. Fitch. Thank you. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at Fleming.Foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.